Hello, hello, all of our energy industry young professionals. My name is Mark Heineman, and I'm with YPE's Denver chapter. I was absent for our fifth interview, but Ellen and Jake carried the torch and did an awesome job interviewing our guest, Barbara Gnong. I was impressed with Barb's passion for the industry and her holistic view of the energy space. She's a self-made woman who wasn't afraid to cold call, transform herself, and build herself a career many people aspire for. Have a listen. Let us know what you think. Welcome to the Young Professionals in Energy podcast. I'm Jake Addison here with other co-host, Ellen Scott. Uh, how you doing, Ellen? Doing well. So Mark Heineman, unfortunately, had to get called away to a work trip in Midland today. So you've got Jake and me here. And uh, we're pretty excited about our guest because since Jake has an environmental engineering background and I have an oil and gas background, our guest kind of has both of those experiences. So we're looking forward to interviewing her. Oh yeah, lots to talk about today. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, with no further ado, uh, Barbara, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah. Hi, good morning. Thank you for inviting me. This mm-hmm. this is a new and um, fun experience, I'm sure. Um, so my name is Barbara Ganong. I have actually I grew up in the oil and gas industry. Um, third generation in the oil and gas industry. I grew up in Bakersfield, California. Uh, I graduated from Colorado School of Mines in 1982, so now you all know about how old I am. Um, (laughs) We can do math. (laughs) Right? (laughs) It's a good thing. Petroleum engineering degree from Colorado School of Mines uh, in 1982. Prices were tanking about then. I I got a job with Union Oil Company in California by the late 80s, it was definitely challenged. And I saw a lot of my classmates released from their work. And uh, that was that was a big um, downturn in the industry. I was uh, transferred from Bakersfield to Casper, Wyoming, and saw the writing on the wall, realized maybe I needed to do something different, was married, had a baby. So I followed my husband to the Bay Area. And that actually started out my official environmental career. Just to back up just a little bit, when I was at Union Oil, they put us through a training program, which I think some bigger companies still do. And you go, you spend six months to 18 months in drilling, production and reservoir engineering. And every company is a little bit different, but obviously drilling is where we put the hole in the, in the ground and case the well. Mm-hmm. And um, production engineering for Union Oil Company was uh, pretty much all the facilities. And Mm -hmm. so in Bakersfield, that was uh, extensive steam flooding work, uh, oil treating to get the water, which is the same density as the oil separated. That's, you know, magic trick for production engineers when they're almost equal density. (laughs) Uh, And the other interesting part about that, too, was that part of that production engineering was when I was there, California was going through a huge uh, revamp of their quality codes. And we were actually having to electrify all the oil wells, taking them off of Ajax oh, gas engines yeah. and uh, getting rid of all the, those types of emissions. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that also happened, too, was that they were trying to capture the annulus gas, which was just being vented to atmosphere. That's That was standard practice in a lot of fields, is to just mm-hmm. leave the annulus open to the atmosphere. Theory there is you keep the least amount of back pressure on your formation and you have good production. So so really and truly, I was doing environmental work like right from the get-go, right mm-hmm. when I graduated in 1982 with a petroleum engineering degree. 
several of my assignments as a you know new engineer were to go out there and um, help make this system work for capturing the annulus gas. Uh, we had, because we were capturing the annulus gas, we were running it through chillers, collecting some hydrocarbons that were Mm-hmm. In, the, in that gas and water, and in effect, concentrating what was left over, which was non-hydrocarbon gases, okay. which happened to be, in many cases, H2S and CO2. Mm-hmm. So we had a system to treat that, and um, it, it, it never worked, right? So, and they always threw a trainee engineer on it. Go <laughs> fix it, you know? And, there, and we were only in there for like six months, so, you know, you had... So actually, one, and one of the very fun things I was able to do was I convinced them to bring a mobile lab out because H2S samples just degrade so quickly. You know, mm-hmm. you, you have to be very careful, especially back in 1982, how you capture them. Mm-hmm. So I got a mobile lab out there, and we went around to various wells and found specific wells that were like, you know, I think one of them was like 128,000. Whoa, okay, <laughs> you know, yeah. yeah. Right? And the rest of them were like, you know, maybe 10 or 20,000. But then you collect them all and you concentrate it. And now you've got this concentrated stream that you're trying to treat through a single phase caustic scrubber, basically, to take the H2S out. It was working very efficiently, 99% efficient, but it still couldn't drop it below. We were allowed at that time 2,000 parts per million to the Mm -hmm. atmosphere through this unit. So again, going back to, yeah, this is oil and gas. Yeah. You know, I broke out. I broke out to be a petroleum engineer and drill wells and, you know, Mm find you know help people find oil and bring it to the surface and commercial you know project but i was handed you know these kind of projects that i worked on right from the beginning and um, partly because you were in california at the time right. where they're revamping air yeah. quality standards and- right they were basically addressing all these issues they were addressing mm-hmm. you know and again industry's standard for a long time was to leave let produced water just percolate and evaporate mm-hmm. Right. Well, that that wasn't allowed any longer. So we had a lot of evaporative uh, percolation ponds, if you will, Mm -hmm. that were dried up and we had to collect samples and characterize the waste and find where we could take those pond pit bottoms to. Yeah, it wasn't environmental engineering, but it was. I mean, these Mm -hmm. are these are the same activities that most many environmental engineers find themselves in when they're involved in a characterization of a site and the waste identification and how to deal with it. What are we going to do now? You know, right. And it's so important to look at the whole picture. Exactly. The interesting part about all this is that like the um, casing vapor recovery system on the annular side, the production foremen were just fit to be tied. They, they did not want to see this system in place. This was going Mm -hmm. to put back pressure on their wells. Their production was going to get killed. I mean, these are their arguments for like, Mm -hmm. And oh, is you know doomsday, right? That we were going to have to spend all this money to to do this. And in fact, to do this, we had because we're we're collecting annular gas from like hundreds of wells. Mm-hmm. They're all it's a dense spacing. It's even denser now than when I was there. You know, mm-hmm. when I was there, it was like two and a half acres going down to acre and a quarter. <laughs> and now it's like, you know, half acre to a quarter acre. Most people who are working the Rockies don't really realize how rich. Um, California oil. I mean, it's high porosity, mm-hmm. uh, high saturations of oil. But the challenge is that it's hard to move, right? It's it's hard. And it can yeah. Some of many of the fields are hard to move. I mean, mm-hmm. I've, I've worked that was heavy oil. I've worked light oil in California okay. too. But mm-hmm. to collect all this casing vapor, we had to put a compressor in the field to pull kind of a slight vacuum and move these gases. Right. Mm-hmm. As an engineer, now you probably have already kind of gone. Oh, we took it from like fourteen point seven to like maybe. 
two pounds mm -hmm. or maybe even zero pounds at the wellhead. Mm -hmm. So the net effect was actually we were reducing the bottom hole pressure even more. And that doesn't seem a lot uh, like a lot to those of us that have been working these heavily pressure. High pressure, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and maybe not even high pressure, but normal mm -hmm. pressure. But mm -hmm. when in California where the pressures are just like, it's like it won't move unless you put pressure on it and mm -hmm. or you add heat to reduce the viscosity so that the oil moves. This was huge. So production actually increased by like 10%, 10, 10 to 20% in some instances. Not only that, but the hydrocarbons that were collected in that annular gas stream that we dropped out and collected pretty much paid for the entire system in like, I think less than a year. That's so wow. awesome. Right. This is just the definition of a win-win. Ex exactly. But at the time, you know, it was like pulling teeth to get people right. to, mm -hmm. and, to change. you know, and we also, also, you, you don't ever quite know, you know, how mm -hmm. is this going to work, you know? But it is important to get field buy-in. And as soon as the field soups, you know, saw that their production was coming up and, you know, they worked through some of the little issues in the system and stuff like that, they're like, yeah, okay, this is good. This works. Yeah, totally a win-win. Yeah. And, and so these guys have a lot of experience in the field. And so they're, they've been there a while. They, they think they know how their wells should be operated. Oh, yeah. And so it's just very yeah. challenging to get them to, it can, to change. It can be. Yeah. Yeah. Who's it, this five-year engineer coming from Colorado School of Mines telling yeah. me or, how to change, Or right? fresh out of school yeah. engineer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe even you fresh out, and, oh, and be, and be a girl, you yeah. know, you know, in 1982, you know, right. be a girl, 1982, 83. Mm -hmm. That's part of our challenge, I think, as, um, working professionals, especially if you are doing field work, which which I actually enjoy field work quite a bit, is to have that dialogue, productive, constructive dialogue, and win over those that maybe are not so convinced that you know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And so, <laughs> so how how do you do that? Yeah. What are some strategies <laughs> yeah, for doing that? Yeah. Well, I think it's, it's always... Respect? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, and it's mutual respect because... Yeah. You know, a, a mechanic or a field pumper in the field, you know, they've been in the field mm -hmm. most of their career, 10 years, 30 years. Basically, what I found is that all of these people are intelligent people. Mm -hmm. What happens is maybe their capacity to do paperwork that we do in school was what kept them from sure. going to school. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just like, yeah, I don't, I don't like doing paperwork. You know, I don't like doing, you know, homework or whatever. And then that will, like, if you're relying on them for reports and information, sometimes you have to work with them a little bit yep. more to get it, you know, fleshed out a little bit more so mm -hmm. that you have what you need. I met so many talented, incredibly smart field hands. And when you develop a relationship with them and, sh and again, start with respect, right? And win their trust and their respect by, you know, having a dialogue with them because mm -hmm. you can learn things from them. Sure. I mean, you might be convinced you're totally right and then you start talking to him and you get a little more information and you go oh wait now I'm I need to look at this differently and so you need to recognize that they helped you come up with that solution that they mm -hmm. were part of the solution I think that's key in any relationship actually is to you know engage that person as you know your help you're both helping each other in getting where you need to go oh yeah, yeah. And that, that's great advice for any young professional right. Yeah. Right, because you may have a new perspective coming straight out of school, a new skill set. Maybe if you're a young professional entering an office environment, maybe you know how to code, but that doesn't mean that someone who's been doing it for years and years and years in Excel doesn't also have something to teach right. you. Yeah, right. Absolutely. That's great advice. So I'd love to get into that transition from 
Bakersfield and Casper, very <laughs> typical oil towns yeah. into San Francisco Bay, environmental consulting. T- tell us about that right. transition. Yeah, that was an interesting thing in that that was 1989, 90, and definitely there was not much activity in the oil and gas industry. Prices were really low. When, like to, to set the stage, when I was in Casper, they sent me there for a heavy oil field, said, hey, and I was doing reservoir engineering, which for Union Oil at that time was reservoir engineering, economics, and also we did completions. I mean, we mm. called the completion and we would go to the field and decide, okay, this is where the perforations go. Um, and they said, well, we want you to look at this field and tell us what it'll take to get this heavy oil field going. So I looked at it and I they had five 50 MMBTU generators out, not working, but out on the field. Mm-hmm. So we didn't have to buy those. Those at the time were like a quarter of a million dollars. And uh, so I, I worked up a program where we used the existing wells, brought on one generator at a time. Um, we probably only got a couple of cycles, if that, in, in the existing wells because they were not properly completed for thermal recovery. But at least you were generating some oil and hopefully income, and you could um, start drilling new wells and completing these wells properly for thermal recovery. And so by cycles of thermal recovery, you mean injecting like a, steam? Yeah, huff and, and puff yeah. type system. So when I worked up this, you know, I was bringing on one generator at a time, you know, wells and blah, blah, mm-hmm. and uh, got done. And I went into the supervisor and I said, well, this is what it looks like. It looks like we need $25 oil and free gas in the steam generators to hit our hurdle rate at the time. And he looked at me, he goes, well, I guess you're not going to be very busy because oil, we were getting like $6.87 for that Wyoming sour crude at the time. So that's, I mean, just to keep it in perspective, I I know we're like in, you know, a doldrum right now in, in the industry, but... Um, but yeah, it was tough. So at that point I just, I said, yep, you know, I asked for a leave of absence. I didn't obviously didn't go back to union, union oil, moved to the Bay area. There was no real oil and gas activity there. I mean, Chevron's got a huge headquarters there, but nobody was really hiring at that time. So I reinvented myself as a environmental engineer. And the way I pitched it was basically, you know, I'm a petroleum engineer, which is really a subsurface fluid engineer, which is Mm -hmm. pretty much I can do anything a hydrogeologist can do. I can do it in multiple phases. Sure. That worked. I had also had a, um, I was, I am registered in the state of California as a professional engineer. Mm -hmm. And at that time they were very hungry for uh, registered professionals. So that would be my other advice to people. I think it's always good to have uh, in kind of in your hip pocket. If you want to use it, you do. If you don't want to use it, you don't. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't use your registration and and other credentials. I mean, at one time I was actually fully Haswopper trained, <laughs> which is hazardous uh, and emergency response for those of you who don't right. know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I no longer keep that credential. It's not work I aspire to do. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, right. So no need to keep that one. But but yeah. So I I got in the door. I worked for three different consulting environmental firms. At that time, the biggest activity was what they called Yanka tanks, which was all the gasoline uh, tanks at service stations that mm-hmm. were leaking. Being in the Bay Area, we had also Silicon Valley clients. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And Silicon Valley, for those of you who may or may not be aware, they use some crazy, insane solvents that uh, they use as cleaners. And having that on their site... 
mm-hmm. in some sort of storage container inevitably led to it, especially at that time, uh, people just weren't that careful about how they stored their material wow. or what they did with the waste material. Mm-hmm. So there was contaminated soil wow. on these sites. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so I worked on a building and they actually had trenches basically throughout the building with a vapor collection system. Again, going back to like sort of like what I had done like first straight out of school mm-hmm. um, and collected uh, basically the Vados, which is, for those who don't know, is the um, unliquid saturated soil just, you know, at the surface and, you know, below the, below the surface and collecting the vapors from that and running it through an activated carbon unit. Wow. Right. So it doesn't get trapped in your basement. Yeah. And in this case, it was in underneath a chip manufacturer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow. And so, so, and then the other one that I thought was, I actually got a little more excited about was a pump company, a huge pump company. They have two shops, uh, one in Northern and one in Southern California. And I walked in to their shop and they had one single stage. How long is this table? I don't know. It's like, what? 30 feet. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Five, yeah. Something like yeah. That. yeah. So they had a, one single stage of a screw pump that was like 35 feet long and probably, I don't know, it's like two and a half feet in diameter. Uh-huh. And I'm like, wow, where'd this come from? I mean, you know, as an engineer, when you see stuff like that, you kind of go, whoa, that is like, <laughs> <laughs> that's exciting. <laughs> that's huge, you know? And they, they said, oh, this is one of the, the transfer pumps that they use to transfer fluid liquids from the Thumbs Island, which is an oil and gas producing island off of Southern California mm-hmm. to shore to the refinery. Wow. And so they were doing a repair on a, on a stage mm-hmm. or two. I mean, actually, there were like, I think there were probably three stages in there at the time. Mm-hmm. But these guys, these pump manufacturers and any industry that's been around for a long, long time, and had their property for a long, long time. You know, back in the day, like pump manufacturers, again, they use a lot of crazy solvents to clean their product. And they just, you know, wash it off. Mm. And it goes into like a sump somewhere and nobody ever thinks about it Mm. until... Something bad happens. Until, you know, the environmental movement and, Mm -hmm. and, you know, somebody's like, hey, where's we got contaminated groundwater here. What's going Mm -hmm. on, you know? And so they actually, they they literally did have like a sump that maybe there was a tank buried at one time, but it had been there too long and rusted through and Mm. just was like going to the ground and mm-hmm. it was, you know sad but so yeah. so anyway but those those are some of the interesting projects that we worked on mm. and so did you find similar to you know your previous experience in the Bakersfield oil field that when you start putting those environmental pieces in place that it, the economics end up better did you find the same sort of things for some of these projects or was it just and eh, now you have to pay more for, yeah now you just clean things yeah, up that, or, I mean yeah that, and that's and that goes back into the the whole argument is like why why everybody needs to be proactive mm-hmm. because when you're not proactive, it will cost you more in the end. Mm-hmm. Just the fact that, oh, that's how we've done it for 20 years or 30 years doesn't mean that that's how you should still do it. And that, you know, if somebody's asking that kind of uncomfortable question, well, where does it go from here? <laughs> it's probably a good question to answer mm-hmm. and deal with, yep. you know, at some point. 
but yeah, I think I think that again the transition was from when I was at Union Oil. A lot of the regulatory work was being handled by a regulatory professional. Mm-hmm. When I made the move into environmental, the environmental person actually works with the um, agencies and generally multiple agencies. You, it's very difficult to get through just one agency and be good. You you have a lead agency, but then the boxes all have to be checked by all mm-hmm. the other agencies too. So that you know requires cold calling them sometimes, you know, or, you know, if you inherit a project, then you've already got somebody assigned. But if a client comes in, you know, you know, this Jake, if a client comes in and says, Oh, well, you know, I'm looking at the site, they're looking maybe to buy it or whatever. And they want to do a phase one assessment, you know, you identify what activities may have contributed to contamination. Mm -hmm. And maybe you go out and grab some surficial samples, and then you identify you know, oh, there is a problem here. (laughs) (laughs) Then, then you're, then you're cold calling, you're, you know, calling, you're working your way through the agencies and Mm -hmm. it's, it's kind of an exercise in persistence, right? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) I think, but you know. Yeah. Makes sense. And I, I just think it's so great that you talk about this, you know, looking at the whole approach and how you've described when you worked as a production engineer using, you know, your skills in environmental, uh, and then that transferred over to your work, doing environmental remediation. Um, And on your LinkedIn, you talk about an appreciation for environmental and also community sensitivity. So I'm curious where the community sensitivity piece comes in and if there's more parallels that are drawn there. Yeah. I think that's something that as an industry, uh, oil and gas industry, and probably environmental industry too, we do need to be more sensitive to the community. And I think this this is something personally I have been working on the last um, you know five to ten years. But being open to what the other person is saying, try to trying to understand where their concerns are, because most of the time when somebody is really kind of emotionally engaged mm-hmm. on a topic. There's something driving them, and it's usually a fear. Mm-hmm. And, and it may be totally justified. So that's the thing is, I think sometimes we dismiss that too quickly, easily. And I think that it's important for our industry, because we're perceived as being such a horrible polluter, to be sensitive that people perceive us as being toxic and you know all these horrible things. Right. When we know that that's really not true. I mean, mm-hmm. by and large, the toxic presentation that oil and gas industry th- has for the public is pretty minimal, you know. Right, but we can't go back and just prove the facts, right? We can't just throw numbers at right. that person and assuage their fear, correct? Right. You're right. Mm-hmm. And it's really it is really important to get to where what the source of their fear is mm-hmm. and acknowledge it. Not acknowledge that they're correct but acknowledge that that's their emotion, if you sure. will, because they we are all entitled to our feelings. Sure, and it's, yeah, sometimes <laughs> we, you know, and it's <laughs> yeah, it's not always yeah. It's the, and it's that's hard to mm-hmm. um, accept sometimes, you know, on a, when you're communicating with somebody one on one. But I think it's important if we all get better at that, mm-hmm. and then pick one of those fears, one of the things that you know bothers them the most. And then try and talk through it, you know, at a compassionate, lower level, you know, keep it calm and, and get the dialogue going. Right. You know? Right. So so that it, at some point, then you can say, well, you know, I'm, I, I appreciate that you think fracking 
contaminates drinking water, and that would be horrible. I mm-hmm. mean, we right. we uh, drinking water is by far, I think, our most valuable resource. Oh, right. Yeah. And so we have, we have right? some of the tastiest drinking water here in Colorado. Right. Don't yeah. We? <laughs> I mean, you know, and, the, and there are people who, who don't have necessarily tasty water, but mm-hmm. it keeps them alive. True. So, yes, I totally am with you that we need to protect drinking water, but they really haven't documented fracking to be contributing to bad drinking water, contaminating it, ruining it, you know, whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. And... I'm just so impressed because, I mean, what we're talking about here is a social license to operate, exactly. right? Because we have our environmental regulations where you have to reduce your amounts of H2S emissions. There's right. an engineering solution for that, right? right? We were just discussing it. Right. When it comes to people and communities, I feel like a lot of engineers fall short yes. looking directly at the numbers. Um, and so I'm just really impressed that you've bridged this gap. Well, I'm t- trying. Well, <laughs> <laughs> one, it's one person at a time. And right. that's, yeah. Yeah. And it's something that we're developing, but it sounds like these conversations you're having are creating relationships and driving community based solutions and understandings. Yeah. My, and my goal, I, I actually have set kind of a simple goal for myself. And that's if, if I can have a dialogue with somebody and plant the seed of question in their mind that they should maybe investigate a bit more on their own rather than just take the word of whatever is in print that they are getting in their email or in the paper or in, you know, whatever that, that like maybe what they've been told isn't a complete story, then I'm going to take that as a success. Mm-hmm. I, right. may not, I may not get them totally on my side by the time we part, but if I can hopefully give them, plant that little seed of question, and I don't want to say doubt, I, I, that they, again, they need to like question, well, hmm, maybe I don't know as much as I thought I knew about, you know, how they drill wells and frack them. Mm-hmm. So maybe that maybe they'll go look on their own, or maybe they'll engage in the conversation with somebody else on the at the next level. And so, how often do you think you're actually getting those little successes or those little doubts brought into people's mind who start out just yelling at you and saying yeah. you're gonna <laughs> yeah, right. you're gonna poison things? Yeah, right. That's been certainly for me a personal transition because I'm sure I'm not alone in this. I definitely went through a period of time where I didn't even tell people what I did because I didn't mm-hmm. want to engage in that conversation. I I mean, you know, many of us, I'm sure when you say, oh, I'm a petroleum engineer, I work in the oil and gas industry, or, you know, all of a sudden you're being verbally abused Sometimes, for, yeah. for the work you do, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, it's like, whoa, hang on a minute here. Mm-hmm. So I did take a, a class and uh, it's called compassionate communication. Okay. Um, the other word that's used is, and, not, and so I'm no, by no means an expert. I, mm-hmm. I should probably take some more, but yeah. if would anybody. Would you recommend that class? Was I, it I would, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also called nonviolent communication. You can probably also buy some of the books um, mm-hmm. that are out there. And I'm pulling a blank, sorry, on the guy that uh, that developed this, but he was he moved to Chicago. He was a um, Jewish man, moved to Chicago in the middle of all these race riots. And so he went into um, psychology and he made it kind of his life's mission to bring people who are at odds with each other to the table and have that discussion and bring the tone of the conversation down to where, look, we're because because at the end of the day, we're all in this together, you know? Mm, yeah. Right? I like that. Anyway, and so there are certain techniques that they help you see and use. and But one of them, I think the 
my big takeaway from, and I, it was like a six week, eight week class. So it wasn't like, Oh, I did two hours and I'm done. But, um, but was basically understanding that when most people make statements that are kind of out there, it's because it's coming from some fear or concern. And so if you can step back and understand where that's coming from, then you can maybe have a calm discussion Mm -hmm. about how to address that as opposed to get into the throwdown match, which I think is what we do as, as, as engineers and scientists a lot as we go, well, this is the data, you know, yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that uh, we're not doing ourselves any favors by doing that. Okay. And, and I also think, cause the industry um, has relied a lot on the economic argument. Mm-hmm. My own personal opinion is that, uh, that that you mean jobs and, yeah jobs yeah, and what it means and, yeah mm-hmm. what it means to the community and mm-hmm. tax revenue and um all that is that that is also kind of a worn out rhetoric i mean I, it's all true it's i you know i'm not and it's all very important but my own experience when i run into people and i tell them what i do you know and then they start coming down on the oil and gas industry is they honestly don't care about my job they don't care about the fact that you know, half the people in the business will get laid off. And and it just, it doesn't register how that's going to affect the tax base and their schools and the services that they enjoy. My own assessment has been, we need to change that dialogue. We need to change and not use, not resort to that rhetoric. It's all true. It's, I mean, it's not really rhetoric, but it's, yeah. it's true, but it's just a worn out dialogue. Sure. But we need to um, understand their fears get to the the root of it and keep that dialogue going and plant that little seed of questions so that they can hopefully go forward and say, oh, wait, you know, wow, they actually do put like two strings of casing across, you know, all the potable water zones, you know, they're all cemented. And oh, by the way, yeah, the industry is heavily regulated and Mm -hmm. people, by and large, people take care of business. I mean, there's always like in any place, there's always like, you know, a few bad bad actors, you know. Mm But I also think it's important for us to relate how our industry really, really, if it went away, what people would not have. I mean, life-saving, life-changing things that people use every day and they think, oh, no, I don't need oil and gas. I don't know. I don't know about that helmet you put on when you ride your bike. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, you know, I mean, I've fallen off my bike like four times this last summer and thank God I had the helmet, you know. And I, I ski and thank God I had the helmet, you know, a couple of mm-hmm. times, right? Oh, yeah. And, you know, there's other bike components that come from hydrocarbon. So, you know, I'm not sure bikes going to work that well without the rubber tires. Yeah, yeah. Without the oil and gas that we make. Mm-hmm. But I think more importantly, I look at especially uh, like child seats, car safety seats. I mean, how could we make any of those without, I mean, not. The, I'm not talking about the energy in the plant, I'm talking the material, the mm-hmm. raw material to actually make the child safety seat. And uh, and if you want to go back, I was I was raised in the day when we had no child. We barely had seat belts in the car, you know. So <laughs> so yeah, you can live. Yeah, you can definitely you live right. without this. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that everybody will, mm-hmm. and that everybody will come out kind of whole, right? Yeah. And and then you go on and you look at prosthetics, and so I donate platelets. Um, as often as I can, they they kicked me out the last couple times because my blood pressure was too low. But I'm I've been salting up my food, so I'm ready to go back. <laughs> All right, um, right, right. They couldn't do any of that. The the bags that they collect, the tubes that they collect, the 
the aspheresis machine that separates the blood from the um, the components in there because mm-hmm. it's it's got to be disposable so that you know you aren't cross contaminating. I don't know who my platelets go to. They generally go to um, like cancer patients that need uh, platelet, you know, or other people who are really sick. And if I can save their help, save their life. I mean, I'm not saving their lives, but I'm helping, you know, make mm-hmm. them feel better advancing their return of health. How can they do that without all the innards of right. that is are hydrocarbon based? Yeah. No. How can and you go into a surgical suite. So I had this conversation with a, a surgical nurse and there were three of us on a bike trip that were in oil and gas, three out of fourteen. And the conversation got a little heated at times. And finally and I was actually rooming with this woman and I um I finally, I said, well, we need to stop talking about this. I said, but I have to say, you know, and this was before uh, 181, you know, went to vote. And I said, if if it goes through, I said, the people I really feel badly for are the people like out in rural places where we have oil and gas activity. Mm-hmm. Because when we as oil and gas professionals go out to the field, you know, we're stopping at the mini mart. We're stopping sure. at the little cafe. We're having breakfast, lunch, dinner out there. Mm-hmm. You know, we're buying stuff. Buying groceries. Yeah, we're yeah. buying stuff to, you know, keep us <laughs> sustained right. through, you know, a long field day or weeks in the field. And if we aren't out there spending money and and tipping, and, and generally the oil and gas industry tips really well, mm-hmm. then, you know, this waitress who's, you know, out in rural Colorado, her job may go away. And she may be the only breadwinner for her family, or she might be trying to work her way through college. So I tried to express it in that terms. It's like, mm-hmm. well, you know, like I reinvented myself in environmental. Mm-hmm. You know, we're we're smart people. We can sure. do this. But the people that, you know, we're out there working and we're spending money, and I brought it down to that level. Not not like, well, it's not my tax dollar going to the school district. I mean, right. that's just kind of obscure thought. I mean, it's we know it's there, but mm-hmm. um, so anyway. And so was that an effective Yes, for that person. Yeah, okay. absolutely. Because uh, again, I she was a, a retired surgical nurse, and so when we the next morning, so again the seed, right? So one night I go, I said, I said we were at dinner having a mm-hmm. nice dinner. I said, who I really feel bad for, like the wait staff sure. yeah, that work in, in towns. And so the next morning at breakfast, she said, could you elaborate on that? Oh, okay. See, and, th- and so that's the kind of, especially if it's your neighbor or somebody that you interact with on a kind of inter- regular basis, you know, that's what you want them to come and ask you again, or go ask, you know, themselves and go do the research. Do some research. But yeah, and so that's, and so I said, well, look at, I said, you know, here's the deal. I, cause, and I maintain this, I am not interested in producing another barrel of oil to make a gallon of gas to go to the mall. Mm-hmm. Not, it's <laughs> that's like, not gonna resonate that's, with you. that doesn't, yeah. that doesn't, you know, get me lit up at all. Mm-hmm. Right. But knowing that we're producing a product that goes to a sustainable, durable product, like mm-hmm. a childcare seat that, you know, hopefully can be used for a couple of different kids sure. and, you know, protects them um, to make these toys that we all use, you know, when we, if we're bicyclists, you know, you're a mountain biker, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Yep. Right. Um, that help us live healthy, active lives to generate uh, prosthetics for people who it's life-changing for them sure. to have that. And so, and so I asked, I said, I said, just think about You were a surgical nurse. Think about the surgical suite. Think yeah. about what's in there. Yeah. Could what you, isn't could, made. <laughs> could you, could you do what you needed to do to save a person's life or make a life-changing surgery on that person's life, you know, improve their life or whatever, you know, could you do that? 
mm-hmm. without hydrocarbons. Just think about what's in the suite. And she goes, no, we couldn't. Wow. So you got her to say yeah. that. That's amazing. And she goes, okay, I know how I'm going to vote now, wow. right? One person at a time, one little question, pose it out there. Mm-hmm. Well, that was a great topic and obviously a very important one and relevant one here in Colorado. But one other thing that I did want to ask you is about, um, so we kind of skipped over your your time period at EOG oh, yeah. Resources, which is a huge <laughs> oil and gas producer. Those aren't familiar with it. But then you did go out on your own and now you're full-time consulting, right? So. Yes. I mean, talk about that transition or, or any sort of advice that you have for people who do want to, to be a full-time yeah. consultant. Uh, yeah. That, no, it's a great a great question. And I actually have people ask me from time to time, you know, mm-hmm. on a one-to-one basis. So the reality is actually that when I was doing the environmental consulting, I made that transition and I was actually doing consulting in oil and gas before I worked for EOG. Okay. I moved from California back to Colorado. And I, I did what I call pickup engineering. So I called the local consulting houses and I said, hey, you know, I'm here. This is my experience. I'm available to do part-time work. Sure. You know, because, because what you learn, especially if, you're, if you've gone through consultant, consulting firms, is that they'll get projects in and they're like understaffed. Sure. Oh, and, yeah. Right? And so having somebody that they know they could just call and get 20 to 40 hours a week for a couple of weeks is kind of a great niche to find, to get, mm-hmm. you know, to have that person. And lo and behold, basically, I was working for um, a consulting company doing pickup engineering. Pretty much when I got done with the project, you know, I'd go run errands. My kids were little at the time. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I, and I'd, I'd get home at the time of answering machines. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I'd have a message saying, oh, hey, Barb, you know, we've got another project for you. And so I was pretty busy. Wow. Yeah. And for me, it was important, and everybody's got to make this as a personal decision, but for me, it was important to be a parent to my kids. I have two, they're now adult sons. Uh, and be there for them. Mm-hmm. But it was also important for me to uh, continue to work and and maintain some, uh, you know, toehold on my career. Right. And keep your mind and, active. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Mm-hmm. And so I was doing that. And then I got a lead on the a job at Enron Oil and Gas, which okay. some people have heard of. Yes. Enron Oil <laughs> and Gas was a totally separate company from Enron Corp. They mm-hmm. were they had their own ticker symbol. They were just happened to be owned by Enron Corp. Like 50% of the stock was owned by Enron Corp. Okay. I went in to interview. Well, I in, actually I interviewed with their engineering manager. And he said, oh, yeah, I think, I think you know, you'll be fine. And then I didn't hear anything. And then the general manager calls me about, I don't know, three or four weeks later. And I come downtown Denver and meet with him. And he, he goes, well, you know, we'd, we'd really like to bring you on. And and at this point, it was still really important for me to have time with my kids, right? Mm-hmm. So I said, well, here's the deal. I said, you know, right now I'm working part-time. I have plenty of work. Mm-hmm. And so I'm I'm available to work part-time for you guys uh, if you like. But if that doesn't work for you, fine. I, I totally understand. Yeah. And he goes, yeah, well, let's give it a try. So I started out working part-time for Enron Oil & Gas. Mm-hmm. And as my kids got older and as I was working more hours, it became uh, obvious that what I should do is uh, go full-time. Okay. And I did do that. So 16 and a half years after I started as a part-time, actually temporary employee, 
I took early retirement from EOG in 2013. Okay. And then I, I actually did go to work for a small startup for a while and then decided that, you know what, I'm fine consulting. Mm-hmm. Um, I When I left EOG, I was uh, quite comfortable. So I, I consult. It's not, I mean, I'm not... Ac- actively marketing myself out there to firms. Mm-hmm. It seems like clients kind of work kind of walks in the door and it's enough for me to balance where I'm at in my life, which is because I like to travel and ski a Go lot. Skiing, and, yeah. <laughs> I do know that about so, you. <laughs> so I, t- I tell people I play hard and I work right. sometimes, you know. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Something to aspire to. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> so yeah, making that transition, it's, I, I mean, if you make that transition, you need to decide, is it, is it, this is really how I'm going to pay the bills and, you know, in theory, get rich. And, okay. and that means you're going to have to go out and market yourself sure. and drum up business, uh, which I did do actually earlier. I, sure. I cold called people or I would get wind of an opportunity and I mm-hmm. would, you know, make that phone call and, so, so again, making that phone call or, or meeting people, um, you know, either at networking events or whatever can be the way to get in a foot in the door to get those projects. Mm-hmm. And it's just one project at a time. And then yep. you, then you find out you're always worried about the next project when it's, <laughs> when is it going to show up? Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. So kind of two different ways to approach it. If you just want to live your life and make a little bit of money yeah. on the side, or if you really want to make it pay the bills. Yeah. For mm-hmm. me, for me now it's, it's, uh, just to stay active and, yep. you know, I, I tell people I take projects if they're interesting to me sure. or if they pay enough. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I did recently was I was consulting to the city county of Broomfield. And while I didn't consider it like a highly paid opportunity, I also felt like it was sort of my duty at this point in my career to be front and center to the public. And going back to this, keeping the dialogue right. open and advancing that um, dialogue. Yeah. So that's great. That's so awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we've taken up quite a bit of your time, but one of my favorite questions to ask people is if you've ever thought something to be true about the industry and then had your mind changed. That's a great question. And um, I, I did think about that a bit. And I think for me, because I grew up in the industry, I actually studied biology through third year of college. Oh, really? And was on my way to get a getting a biology degree and probably going into veterinary med medicine. Or, okay, that's cool. And part of that was because obviously I love animals, but part of that was because I watched my dad work in the. I mean, he was he was a prospect generator and consultant, and he would take calls at breakfast and at dinner and you know middle of the night, and he was gone a lot. And I thought, there's no way I want to, you know, have a life like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I really thought that was it. What I did find out later, because I just figured, and, and I, we were a little unique because I did ac- actually was born in Bakersfield and grew up there. That's where he based his consulting work, but he traveled okay. a lot, right? And, but many of my friends, they moved, they were with all the big companies and they moved every two years or so, you know, and Mm -hmm. I was like, no, there's no way I want to do that, you know. But what I did find out is that, you know, because the industry is so diverse in disciplines that depending on what aspect of the industry you can, you go in, I mean, there were guys that, um, Occidental had a huge office in Bakersfield. There were guys that had their entire career in Bakersfield sure. and they worked international projects, mm-hmm. but they lived and their families lived for, you know, 30 years more in Bakersfield. Yeah. And so that was, that was something that I just, you know, I thought, I thought everybody moved, you know, mm-hmm. with, and that you had all these awful hours, 
But in reality, it depends on what aspect of the industry you're, you're in. Mm-hmm. And in reality, I actually liked the weird hours, <laughs> the okay. extended hours in that field work. So yeah. you never know. I mean, you might you might think, oh, there's no way I want to do that. Okay. But at the end of the day, you know, you get drawn in and you may enjoy it mm-hmm. like I did. I mean, I enjoyed field work. I still do. Cool. So, so op- yeah. open minds about careers. Yeah, yeah open awesome. minds and re- and recognizing that our industry is so diverse that mm-hmm. um, there's always some place you can like, if you really want to, you can find to like one of the things I, I continually watch is in uh, microbial enhanced recovery. Mm-hmm. I just think it's super fascinating, mm-hmm. and they and that the companies that are doing that right now are have are approaching it totally differently from how it was approached in the 80s. Okay. So, which is cool. I mean, it's yeah. a good thing. Nice. So, yeah, exciting. Well, we might have to get you back on to talk <laughs> yeah. about that topic then. Um, but yeah, I think we'll we'll wrap up there. And thank you so much again well, thank for you. all your time and all your experience and great stories. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for doing this for yeah. everybody. Yeah. Really yeah. appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks. All right. Barb Ganong, what a career. It also sounds like she's pretty relaxed now with the ongoing consulting work. How do you guys think Ellen and Jake did without me? Personally, I think it sounded better. Love that, guys. If you're interested in getting involved with YPE, don't be afraid to reach out. We're always looking for partners, sponsors, and advocates for the industry to get young professionals together. If you like the episode, leave us a review, send us suggestions about how to make the podcast better. Most importantly, if you know anyone who wants to chat with us, please have them reach out. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time.